Live from Chatterbox Sports Studios, it's Off the Bench with Tom Brenneman. Well, good morning, good morning, and what a Tuesday morning. We welcome you, as always, to Off the Bench, presented by United Dairy Farmers. I'm Tom Brenneman. We come your way Monday through Friday, 10 to 12. That would be Eastern Time. You can find us, just go to YouTube slash Chatterbox Sports. We're in our Chatterbox Sports studios right here in downtown Hamilton, Ohio. If you'd prefer to join us in podcast form, by all means, search Off the Bench with Tom Brenneman. You're dialed in. I was at UDF this morning. Guy I see every morning. Construction worker. He's like, dude, I just found out where I can download the podcast. So I was telling him about our big show today coming up. Got Keith Hernandez coming up here shortly. But first things first. It was without a doubt one of the coolest moments in the history of the Reds franchise. And that's a lot of history. Over 150 years worth. You think of moments in time. And one that stands out would be Johnny Bench. His final game ever at Riverfront Stadium. What's he do? He hits a home run. Last night marked the return of Joey Votto. So too, one of the greatest players in Reds franchise history. He's in the final year of a contract. He's played for only one team and only wanted to play for one team his whole career. He's closing in on 40 years old. He has struggled to return from two very serious surgeries on his shoulder and his biceps. There were questions on how would he do? How would he fit in? Would he disrupt the chemistry of this feel-good winning Reds team? Would he take away playing time from guys who at this point in time could be better players? He was activated before the game in the lineup back where he's always been, over at first base. His first time up, he hits a laser to center field for an out. Then came his second trip. Bottom of the fifth inning, and Votto delivered a moment which we will not soon forget. Bad for Joey Votto. Bash to right! His first game back! Joseph Daniel Votto! He said he was ready, and he delivers! You know, the old king looks pretty good in that Viking outfit. <laughs> Boy, does he ever! I think he's going to need to take the curtain call. I think he will. He's coming out with the he's coming out with the outfit on. There he is. You can't write it any better. The very first pitch of his second at bat, and it was absolutely crushed out of here. There is some So that was at bat number two. But Vado, he was not quite finished in this dramatic return. With his team down a run in the sixth inning. Bases loaded. Vado delivered the goods. Bases are loaded for Votto. Hard up the middle, base hit. India scores. De La Cruz, green light. He crosses on a slide. Joey Votto, the Reds ahead. He has blitzed all three batted balls. After the game, it was naturally a love fest. And like his home run and that bases loaded single, Votto delivered for Reds fans yet again. 
Thank you very much, Joey. You said earlier today in the news conference, you were asked, what's it going to feel like to have your name called, to step back in the box, step back on the field? You said, ask me after the game. It's after the game. How was it? You know, um, I, I, I have to say thank you to the Reds fans, everyone in Cincinnati, any Reds fan out there that that gave me so much love and support today. Uh, this is your team, and I know that all you want is for us to play well, for us to uh, earn that championship you deserve. And for you to support me uh, with such a hot team, for me to rejoin the team, uh, and for you to support me in doing that, I, I, it means a great deal to me. And uh, I, I'm so glad to be back, and it's so good to get a win today. What was it like putting on that Viking cape and helmet for the first time? By the way, it looked really good on you. It, 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 long time coming, and uh, I thought I, I, ever since I watched them put it on each other, I was thinking about how, how badly I want that on me because it's tied to a winning moment. Yeah. And that's exactly, exactly what this team's about. And this is a different energy. This is a different energy than I've experienced in in. in, in years, maybe in my entire career, the way these guys think about themselves, how hard they play. Uh, I want to be a part of this. We are all a part of this. And it, it's, it just feels so good. It's exactly what we deserve here in Cincinnati. I tell you, it, it was unbelievable. And there's one thing uh, about Votto. He is all about winning. And, and, and it was just uh, not surprising in any form or fashion that he would, would focus more in that interview about his team, the energy, the vibe, the way they're winning games and wanting to go out and win for the fans and win for the town and win for his teammates. It was just an unbelievable night. Now, when all is said and done, let's don't get carried away, okay? It's only one game, one moment in time. But it was a night that all Reds fans are going to cherish forever and hang on to forever. Now, the most important part of it all is that the Reds win last night for the ninth straight time. And coupled with Milwaukee's loss to Red Hot Arizona, Cincinnati sits atop the National League Central Division. Can you believe it? It's the Reds' longest winning streak since 2012. Game two of the series is tonight. Ben Lively will oppose Noah Davis' first pitch 7-10. So that's all the good news. Great news. Now, the not-so-good. Hunter Green was paced on the uh, injured list last night. You may recall he had to have a start backed up about a week and a half ago with a sore hip. Well, apparently, it's bad enough that he will now be out for at least the next two weeks. And we all know, if the Reds are going to win anything this season, this winning streak notwithstanding, they need Green back healthy and effective ASAP. We shall see. Speaking of young teams, how about the Miami Marlins and their young star, Luisa Reyes? The Marlins have won five in a row. They are 11 games over 500. Have you heard about this, Arias? He had his second five-hit game in the last three days. It's his third five-hit game. This month, propelling his season batting average to 400. He has 11 days now to become the first baseball player since 1900 with four 
five hit games in a single calendar month. College baseball, two win or go home games last night in Omaha for a couple of teams. Tennessee knocks out Stanford eight for the final. They advance on to the semifinal round. And number one, Wake Forest rallies late in a come from behind 3-2 win over LSU. Two more elimination games tonight. And these are elimination games for all four teams playing. LSU takes on Tennessee, while TCU will battle Oral Roberts. The winners of those games will advance to the semifinal round. The only two teams right now in the semis are Florida and Wake Forest. So as we mentioned, coming up on the show today, we will be joined by one of the great players, all-around great players in baseball history. He's a member of both the Cardinals and the Mets Hall of Fame, Keith Hernandez. All right, gentlemen, we got him coming up in about, uh, about 20 minutes. Uh, now, how many of you guys went to the game last night? First of all, good morning to all. Casey, Paul, Elliot, Jacob, morning. good morning. Morning. All right, who went last night? I believe me, Paul, and Elliot. All right, Paul, what was it like? I mean, it was fantastic. I, the crowd was great, it, even through the rain and everything else. I think that we were all a little concerned that maybe the rain would keep people away, whatnot. But no, that, that didn't happen. It was a good crowd last night. And to come out there, it was funny. <laughs> I was there with um, Lizzie and a bunch of Xavier people were there, and we were. I, I was standing next to Mike Schmaltz, who's been on Not Too Picky a lot. If you've seen him, I was standing next to Mike, and right as Joey Votto was walking in the box, I, I just looked over at, at him, and I go, he's hitting a home run right here, no doubt in my mind. Boom, first pitch, he hits a home run. It just felt that way because of everything going on in the game. You saw how hard he swung on the very first pitch he got. It was like he was trying to hit a home run on the first pitch, and then after the game he says – that he was hoping to hit a home run in the first two at-bats. Well, he said they told his friends he was yeah. going to hit a home run in yeah. one of his first two at-bats. Yeah, so you could tell the way he was swinging that he wasn't going up there swinging trying to get a knock. He was going up there swinging with he, – he was swinging with a whole lot of momentum behind that bat, and uh, he ran into one. It was a great moment. Um, I was sitting right down the right field line, so it was, it was kind of right over there. And then some lady ran on the field right after it happened, so it was a kind of – Kind of a weird moment. Most anticlimactic fan storming I've ever seen. Just ran. Well, I mean, uh, uh, by all accounts, nobody even knew she was there because all eyes were on Votto, right? Yeah, just ran. But the only reason I realized it was because I was sitting right behind her. And uh, she ran on the field and then didn't even get tackled. Nothing. Just immediately ran into <laughs> ran into custody. But whatever. Uh, but, yeah, no, it was, it was a great moment. And then the Reds to come back and win the way they did. I know we've talked a lot on this show about, you know, how it – Probably isn't good in the long run for the Reds to have to keep playing from behind, but they didn't play from behind last night as much as they have at some points in this in this stretch because you know you're only down by one, you're playing at home, you have your best guys coming up in the order. So it was a little different vibe last night than you know playing down from like what they did on Sunday yeah. in Houston where uh, they they looked dead in the water and it's five to two and their bats aren't doing anything. Last night they looked a lot better. They like Joey Votto, like you said, running into one on the first pit or in his first at bat, he just hits it right at somebody. But three balls at over 100 miles an hour. I mean, you can tell it wasn't just lip service in his press conference where he was saying that he wanted to come in and make an impact immediately, and he wanted to. He he he, he went out and he proved it. That was a big deal, guys. Yeah, I thought it was one of the best crowds I've seen in a, in a weeknight, maybe in my entire life. It started with a bang. Kevin Newman, Trace's guy, 
Started things off with a home run in the bottom of the uh, bottom of the first. Jack, he's playing well. He's played very well. He's fighting for his spot on the team. And the other guy we talked about yesterday, Nick Senzel, he cranked one to deep left as well. So both those guys right now are fighting for a spot. I thought it was one of the most fun games I have seen. Uh, I, I went to Ellie's first home run night. That was probably my the f- number one most fun. This is now second most fun, and I'll probably be there again tonight. I, he said it best. I, I was at Ellie's first home run as well. That probably still takes the cake, but last night is, is pretty close. That ovation, the home run was great for Votto. Driving in those two runs to take the lead was great for Votto. That ovation, when he walked up to the plate for his first at-bat, I mean, it was unbelievable. The ovation for Ellie when he came up for his first at-bat was pretty cool. Yeah. This one took the cake. Because you, we sat here for weeks talking about, does Votto have a place on this team, blah, blah, blah. When he walked out there, everyone in that stadium came together and said, wow, we love Joey Votto, and he's finally back, and we get to watch him play. So it was pretty cool to see everyone come together and and relish in that moment. Well, there's no doubt. And and now you, you know, he just handled everything so perfectly last night, and that's no surprise. I mean, he always does. And, 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 uh, and, you know, you kind of wonder what was going through his mind. Uh, You know, I'm not sure we've ever really gotten to know the guy. Um, He's been a lot of social media stuff now, right? You'll see him and he had the, uh, my son was showing me the uh, walking down with a red suit on and the black shirt and the hat and all that stuff and the batting gloves. I mean, that was a really cool video. And, uh, but, but I'm not sure that a lot of people in the town have gotten to know him very well through the years, even though he's been here 17, 18 years, whatever it is now. Um, and, you know, slowly but surely, that personality has started to come out. And, um, man, to watch him last night, uh, like you talked about, Jacob, uh, b- before he even stepped in the box and the ovation that he got was just, was just unbelievable. I mean, it, it truly is going to be one of those nights um, where, you know, the most recent example of one of those nights, different, but same in, in, in the sense that when Jay Bruce hit that home run in 2010 to center field, um, you know, you run into 40,000 people now that said they were there. Right. Well, there, there was about 22,000, I think, 25, whatever it was there that night. Last night, there was 20,000 there, and there's going to be about 120,000 that will tell you they were there that night because it was yep. that cool of a right. moment, yep. right? Yep. Now, I want to give props to the Rockies catcher, um, Elias Diaz. Him stepping out in front of home plate to recognize the moment and give Votto his full, you know, to take the helmet off and wave to the crowd. That was a pro move. Yep. So kudos to him. Oh, there's no doubt. No doubt. Um, Were you surprised only 20,000 last night? You guys say you weren't. I mean, there was a threat of rain. Um, I thought it would be better than that, but you you said, Elliot, that they've been averaging on Monday night, what? Last four or five Monday nights? 10,000. Okay, why did I just lose being able to hear out of here, Casey? You're good. I am. You sure? Yep. Okay. Go ahead. You good? I'm good. Now. All right. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, they've been averaging about 10,000 the past four, five, I think five Monday nights. Uh, last night they had 20,000 with the threat of rain. I think there would have – my guess yesterday was 25,000. I believe there would have been 25,000 there had, had weather not been a factor. But even, but even so, the 20,000 that were there, it was spread out pretty evenly across the ballpark. The, the, the bleachers and left and right, they were packed. The upper deck, the nosebleeds, those were packed. I thought it was a very, very, very good turnout for a Monday night rain game. Okay. All right. Could be wrong, though. Well, no, 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 no. I mean, it, it, I, there's no doubt watching it on television, which I was, uh, it, it, it looked like it was a lot bigger than yeah. that. You know, most of the time you take that shot – 
say from the Reds, first base side dugout behind, say, a left-handed batter, and you can see up into the, the lower level, and there's people just spread out everywhere. You know, and normally you don't you see a ton of empty seats. At the very beginning of the game, it looked that way, but it seemed like it started to fill in yeah. quickly, yeah. right? Yeah, that's, that's what I thought. And I'm going to start, as, as the Reds continue to win here, I'm going to lose my trick where I buy nosebleed tickets and I just sit on the third or first base line. I'm going to lose my ability to do that if, if, if the Reds keep winning. We were asked to move twice yesterday. Really? And I have not been asked to move <laughs> once this Red season. It's a beautiful problem to have. Jacob, you've been asked in the chat if you spilled your breakfast on your shirt today. <laughs> I don't see anything on my shirt. They're talking about the O. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, I stay loyal to my Buckeyes. Yet he's working for Nick Saban. <laughs> I, know. I know. How do you think Nick Saban will react to it? You better pray. I mean, I understand that he was uh, starting to become very interested in his show, Nick Saban. I know. If he starts to watch, that's a guy doing his video. Well, for those yeah. of you that don't know, Jacob, he's the video guy for Alabama football. I know, and Saban reached out, sent me an email a couple weeks ago. He said, what, what's the deal with that Jacob guy? He said, I don't know. He's wearing a lot of Ohio State stuff, Tom. Man. Okay. Well, when the big, I guarantee you one thing. He ain't wearing that when Saban walks in the practice facility come July. No, no, no. I leave all the O's at home <laughs> when I go back to school. All right, all right. All right. <laughs> um, you know, I mentioned uh, the, the other part of this whole thing, which is the not-so-good news. And that's a Hunter Green thing. Um I have said on the show a thousand times, I don't believe anybody anymore when they tell me about injuries. I mean, let's start with the fact that the teams can't get into a lot of this stuff because of HIPAA rules. That's the first thing and probably the most important thing. But I made the comment when we heard about Lodolo and some calf injury, I'm like, I ain't buying it. Not buying it. It's turned into a potential three-month deal when it would, turns out to be something far more serious than tweaking a calf muscle, okay? Um, this Hunter Green thing, um, a week and a half ago, he was supposed to start. They backed him up, I think it was eight or nine days, to start over the weekend in Houston. He pitched really well. Now, he didn't have a lot of strikeouts, which, you know, normally he strikes out a lot of guys. Uh, but he was very effective. He was much more pitch-efficient. He was right around 100 pitches getting through six innings, pitched very well, got the win, and that was his fourth straight excellent start for Hunter Green. But here we come now, three days later after he makes a start, and Paul, he's out, injured list. And if there's one area of this team that they continue to win in spite of, it is poor starting pitching. The only guy that's really pitching well on any consistent basis, and he's made of all of, of three starts, is Andrew Abbott, outside of, now on the injured list, Hunter Green. How do they survive? They're finally getting ready to start playing some real teams here coming up. Well, I think when you say, how do you survive? Look, he's going to miss probably two starts as long as this thing doesn't linger. You miss a start against the Braves. You miss a start against the Orioles. But I think you hit the nail on the head, Tom. This is a team in the last couple of weeks that keeps winning despite some bad starting pitching. And when you look at it in the whole, who's to say that, all right, you're missing two starts out of Hunter Green. You don't have a ton of depth back there in the staff. But either way, you trust the lineup to go out there and just get some hits and win you a game. It, it feels like at this point, look, that's not a sustainable model of success over the course of a season. But this doesn't seem like an injury that 
is going to give us a ton of cause for concern like the Lodolo one, which I remember the day after that Lodolo injury, we all walked in here and you made that point where you said, I, you know, Paul, I don't know. I think this one might be a while. And now, hey, look, when is Lodolo going to be back? Hopefully the beginning of August. You get to the point here with Hunter Green where you survive, what, 10 innings without him basically is what's going to happen here. Yep. Five innings against the Braves and five innings against the Orioles. And you just hope that somebody can get you through those. I think they'll be okay. I think they'll be okay. Well, I mean, I, I, I think when you, when, when you break it down in that regard, I think you're right. Uh, that when you just put a, an inning total on what Green normally gives you, which is right around five per start on average. Um, yeah. But, you know, what do the other guys do? We've talked about this uh, all the time. And this isn't dampening winning nine in a row because it's unbelievable. They're in first place, which is even more unbelievable. They were 7-15, and 15, eight games under, right? And now they're three over. So they have played by far the best baseball in the division. They've played, I think they have the second or third best record in the league after 22 games. Arizona would be number one, and the Marlins would be maybe number one now after winning again last night. But look, those are the three teams. And who saw any of that coming, right? You talk about the Padres spending 300 plus million on payroll. You talk about the Mets, 300 million on payroll. You talk about the Phillies, all the money they're spending, right? Talk about the Dodgers. Even the Giants are spending some money, although they're starting to realize now we didn't need to spend it. We're going with all young guys, and they're rolling, right? But if anybody would have said to you, I mean, think about this for a minute. You want to talk about a parlay and odds on a parlay, okay? Are the Marlins in first yet? Or the, No, the Braves are still in first, right? But can, can you imagine if somebody would have laid out a parlay let's say after the first month of this season, and they'd have said, okay, here's a bet you can make. Arizona, Cincinnati, Miami. All three teams would be a division leader. Now, two of the three are in the Reds and the Diamondbacks. Marlins are right there. They're 11 games over 500. What do you think the odds? What, what kind of cash do you think you'd have gotten for that part? Like? All three to win the division? Well, all three say just to be in first place on, on June, June the 15th. 15th. Yeah, uh, it would be pretty high. I will say. I mean, that'd have been tens of thousands payout. Well, in that hundred dollar bet. In the in that vein, uh, I did the math this morning. If you bet a hundred dollars on the Reds money line, just if you don't, if you're not into betting, that just means the Reds to win. If you bet a hundred dollars on the Reds money line and rolled it over every game during the nine game winning streak, Tom, you would have. $57,763. If you bet what? $100. If you started with $100 nine games ago, you win $153 on Roll that first that game. that into the next. You take 253 and put it okay. on game two. You just keep rolling Cost it over. Cost averaging here on this. You just keep rolling it over. Right. $57,763. Get a new car. And a nine-game winning streak. <laughs> you buy two new cars. Well, for a guy like you, I'm not so sure. Yeah. It might have been one car. Yeah, half a car. Not like Tracy car Jones, been a third of a car. Uh, we have him coming up a little bit later on, too. Coming up shortly here, we will have uh, Keith Hernandez. Really looking forward to that. Want, want to talk for a second about uh, tomorrow's show, too. Um, tomorrow is going to be a, a, a really interesting show. Um, 
unbelievably, Bud Black, the manager of the Colorado Rockies, they play the Reds in a day game tomorrow at 1230. He's coming on the program at 10.05 tomorrow. So Bud Black and I go way back. I mean, way back. And, uh, I mean, I've known this guy for almost 40 years. And um, back when he was a player for the Giants. Uh, but just an awesome guy. I feel for anybody who has that job in Colorado. Boy, you talk about a bad team. And we've seen some bad teams lately in the Royals, right? I mean, the Cardinals, they have good players, but they're having a bad year. I mean, the Rockies. Whew. Man, I don't know how you watch it every day, but he does. He's going to join us tomorrow. And then, look. Uh, tomorrow, uh, I am really excited about uh, our guest. His name is Sid Ziegler. He is considered to be the most prominent voice in the LGBTQ community where it intersects with athletics. And we're going to have a lengthy conversation tomorrow about a number of different topics. Transgenders com competing in sports. What are his thoughts on that? Because that's been all over the news for the last year and a half, right? And the Leia Thomas situation, the swimmer, who broke all the records in the NCAA and so forth. We're going to talk about that. We are going to talk about um, high school athletes, college athletes who are gay. What has it been like for them to come out? And studies that have been done about how they're accepted by teammates, how they're accepted by administrators, how they're accepted by... There are coaches. We're going to talk about the situation last week in Sid Ziegler's hometown with the Dodgers and everything that happened on the Pride Night and inviting the group where uh, there was a massive protest at Dodger Stadium, right, by a number of Catholics who were very offended about a particular group that was brought into Dodger Stadium uh, during Pride Night. So we're going to get into all of this tomorrow. And look. I've been right in the middle of all this for three years now. And this is one guy that I have gotten to be very close to. He is the owner, founder and owner of Outsports.com. It is the website for um, gay athletes, whether they be at the collegiate level, particularly at the Olympic level, but also the professional level. And Carl Nassib and Sue Bird and so many uh, basically came out uh, in interviews with him on the website. So um, we're going to get into all of that uh, tomorrow. But coming up shortly, we are going to have Keith Hernandez. Uh, he said he got the link, and he'll be with us uh, any moment now. So looking forward to that. Um, let's see, anything on the chat that I'm forgetting about here? Uh, or anything in there that, uh, that we need to talk about before getting to Keith Hernandez? Nope, nope, nope. Nope. On the Reds that we'll get into, but I'm sure with Tracy Jones uh, later on in the show, Tom. So we have Keith and then Tracy Jones at 1130. Yes, indeed. Tracy Jones at 1130 coming up today and Keith Hernandez coming up here momentarily. Uh, there are a lot of you out there that don't know who Keith Hernandez is because you are on the younger side and that would be everybody in this room. Now, you know him as a guy from Seinfeld. Well, 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 I mean... Yes, I am a you massive You never Seinfeld. saw him play. I never saw him play. But right. I, being, being a Nationals fan growing up and the Mets and him being a, a Mets broadcaster and everything else, like, I mean, and a, and a baseball fan too. I know Keith from baseball, but I also know that 
he was an incredible actor on a couple episodes of Seinfeld. I can't wait to ask him about that. I'm sure he's been asked about it. I was just reading today, and I'll ask him about it in a minute. Apparently, that episode, what's the name of it? The Spitter? The Spitter. The Spitter, okay. Um, um, that was ranked in 1997 as the, think about this for a minute, okay? And I'm going to ask him about it. It was ranked as the fourth best episode by TV Guide, the fourth best episode in the history of television series. I mean, you start reading about that whole thing, and I and I said on the show yesterday. I mean, and, and some would say shame on me, but um, uh, I've never seen an episode of Seinfeld, and I guess it probably would behoove me to do that. Is that right, Paul? At least a couple of Keith's episodes. How okay. about that? All right. Okay. Well, we will do that. Uh, all right. Let's go ahead and uh, and get ready for Keith Barlow Hernandez. He was born in San Francisco, California. In October of 1953, hard to believe this guy's almost 70 years young. I've known him over 30 years. He grew up in Northern California in a baseball family. His father and brother both played minor league baseball. He was a star athlete, like they all are, right, in high school. But sat out, we'll ask him about this in a second. Sat out, I read, his senior year in baseball after a dispute with his head coach. He enrolled, played one year at the College of San Mateo, before being drafted by the St. Louis Cardinals. Now listen to this, folks, because it doesn't exist anymore. Guy was drafted in the 42nd round, the 783rd player chosen. That's a 1971 Major League draft. By 74, he's in the big leagues. In 1978, he won his first gold glove with the Cardinals. In 79, he won the National League batting title, hit 344, led the league in runs scored and doubles, he was co-MVP of the National League with Willie Stargell that year. And from that day, really, a star was born. In 82, he led the Cardinals to a World Series title. In a seven-game series win over Milwaukee, he knocked in eight runs in the series. But in June of 83, after a fallout with manager Whitey Herzog, Hernandez was traded to the New York Mets. And at the time, the New York Mets was basically the equivalent of purgatory. But that would not last long. Two years later, Hernandez, yet a young, very uber-talented Mets team to its first winning season in nearly a decade. He wound up runner-up to the National League MVP that year to Ryan Sandberg. And then in 86, you know the deal there. The Mets won it all, an unforgettable World Series against the Boston Red Sox. But Hernandez, right after, named the first captain in New York Mets franchise history by manager Davey Johnson. He finished his career as a five-time All-Star, two-time World Series champion, a record 11 gold gloves as a first baseman. He's a member of both the Cardinals and Mets Hall of Fame. We talked about earlier. He's also been an actor, Seinfeld, Law and Order, among others. He's an author who currently has a New York Times best-selling book out right now. I'm Keith Hernandez. He's also a broadcaster for the Mets since 1998 and kind enough to join us where the Mets are down in Houston, Texas right now. One of the all-time greats. I told you, Keith, and, and I, I mean, I've told you before. Good morning. How are you? How's everything in Houston? Uh, everything's great in Houston. It's very hot, as it usually is here in June. It's great to see you, Tom. Great to see you, Keith. I, I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us. I always like to ask, Keith, uh, people who come on the show. I mentioned your father, your brother. 
What what was what was family life like for the Hernandez growing up in Northern California? Uh, revolved around all three sports. It was football, then uh, football bled into basketball, then basketball bled into baseball. So uh, everything revolved around um, sports. Back then, there were only networks, the main networks. You know, you had uh, no ESPN. So, you know, Game of the Weeks were uh, very important to watch. Uh, they were every Saturday. And I remember when Dizzy Dean was, uh, for a short while, was was the color commentator for uh, mm -hmm. for those NBC Game of the Weeks, going that far back. And, um, you know, basically, the, we grew up in San Francisco. The Giants only televised, and that was the Giants of Willie Mays, Juan Marichal, Orlando Cepeda, Willie McCovey, Philippe Ballou. Um, they only televised games in Dodger Stadium, Chavez Ravine. And so we only had nine games to watch all year. So it was, it was April when it was school. We had to come home and do our homework. And then we had an early dinner and we all sat down and watched the games. In 62, when they expanded the Astros and the Mets, ironically, the Giants opted of all the teams in the National League to televise another team nine games uh, on, on the road. And they chose the Houston Astros. Uh, for some ungodly reason, I have no idea why they didn't choose the Cincinnati Reds or the Atlanta Braves with Hank. Uh, I'm sorry, the Milwaukee Braves back then with Hank Aaron. I have no idea. But we were just happy to get nine more games to watch Willie Mays, McCovey, and those guys. So basically everybody, everything revolved uh, around sports. Mom uh, basically made the meals around our sporting events, and it was year-round. Now, when I, I read this, and, I, and I'm curious if it's true, because sometimes you read things and, and they're just simply not true. But but is it true you did not play baseball as a senior in high school? I did play baseball, but I didn't play baseball for my high school team. I uh, my dad, I, I had a, I had every scout in the world uh, in the ballpark. I came out late from basketball, so I pitched. You played two games a week. I pitched one game a week. My arm I hadn't thrown since last summer. <clears throat> so my arm wasn't ready and, um, you know, I was their ace and uh, I was getting my fanny kicked because my arm wasn't ready. And uh, my coach pulled me out of a game and said I wasn't hustling or something, something ridiculous. And um, uh, I got the approval from my brother as well, my older brother, Gary, and uh, my father. You know, you don't have to put up with that. And, you know, my dad was always fairly pugnacious to authority. So I quit, and then my dad got me on a semi-pro team the rest of that school year, and they played on weekends, and it was the El Cerrito, believe it or not, the El Cerrito Cardinals, and they had their uniforms were the birds on the bat, like the St. Louis Cardinals, and it was, you had to go across the, I believe, the Bay Bridge, uh, and uh, go over to East Bay, and go past Berkeley, and it was around an hour, and a little over an hour drive. Uh, maybe an hour and a half to the ballpark, and they would play double headers on the weekends. I played Saturday and Sunday, and I was competing. I was 17 years old when I graduated because of my birthday. So basically, uh, I was playing against guys that were 25, you know, 26 guys that uh, played in the minor leagues or were college players, and it was really difficult for me because I was I was overmatched physically. Guys were bigger, but it was a good experience. And then when school let out. The summer league started, and our Babe Ruth League was called the Joe DiMaggio League because of uh, Joe being the mm -hmm. ultimate 
San Francisco ball player. Uh, and uh, actually, Joe DiMaggio, my dad, started the league, and Joe DiMaggio came to opening day uh, the first year. So, and uh, took part in the festivities. But uh, and I had not, when I played in that, I, I I was already in ready to play. I I hit almost 500 or whatever, and I was I lost one game. It was the championship game that went nine innings. I lost two to one. Um, in nine innings, I struck out 19 and. Evidently, the Cardinals were scouting me all summer, and we'll get to the story of my why I was drafted so low. I had full rides to um, Cal, Berkeley, where my brother was going to school and playing there, and um, also Stanford, and I wanted to go to Stanford, and um, they pulled my scholarship from Stanford, so something the word got back, I guess, I don't know, Ray Young was the coach then, so that was flushed down the toilet, which I never forgave my coach for that. And um, But the Cardinals uh, had Jim Johnson was the scout, the local bird dog, and he scouted me all summer long. Uh, and I knew he was scouting me. When the draft came, I was still available down there. And they said, well, heck, he's a, let's take a flyer and just draft him. That's what they told me later. And evidently in the championship game, the head of scouting, George Sylvie, was in the ballpark. He flew from St. Louis, and Bill Sales was the scouting supervisor of Northern California, Oregon, and Washington State. And he flew down for the game. So after that championship game, <clears throat> they came to the house, and Dad told them basically they had to give me $50,000, which they took a big gulp. <laughs> and my dad said, well, look, you know, he's going to go to Cal and play at Cal, and um, I want him to have enough money, and then if he doesn't make it, uh, he can go back and get an education. If not, he's going to go to go to Cal and play ball there. Well, into the night, around an hour, an hour and a half of negotiation, we finally agreed to $30,000. Now, $30,000 for a 40-second round you know, over, what was a five-something pick, was pretty remarkable back then. And I remember Edgar Peel from Brooklyn, or Queens, was the number one draft pick that year for the Cardinals. And he was a big, big guy. And... Uh, uh, he was out of high school, broke all the records in high school. I think he broke all of Ed Cranepool's records. And uh, he was the number one pick, and he was the first baseman. And he got 100000 So that was the money back then. Mm-hmm. Was a, so for me to get 30 <laughs> when number one draft pick got 100 that was a, a lot of money back then. So, And then it went from there. You know, I started playing minor league ball and eventually made it. But, you know, I, I was reading, and I, I had never really paid attention, to be honest with you, until you had agreed to uh, kindly join us here today, that, that when you were coming up through the minor leagues and even at the very beginning of the big leagues, um, your defense was always there. I mean, you won a gold glove uh, a year after being, a couple of years after being in the big leagues, but you weren't hitting a ton in, in the right. minor leagues. What, what, what changed? Because then all of a sudden, within a three-year time frame, four-year time frame, you hit 344 and win a batting title and a co-MVP in the National League. Right. Um, well, 18 years old, the first time you're playing every day, that's a big adjustment. You know, you're in high school, you're playing twice a week, you're in a summer league playing twice a week, and all of a, and, and all of a sudden, and you're, you're the big muck muck, you're the big star. Now, all of a sudden, you're... I remember going to camp when I was 18, my, it was 1972, my first year, and there, there was like... Uh, 400 kids in the ballpark uh you know that were there and there was only there was seven teams and or eight teams back then and uh different classifications 
So the competition was keen. Um, I had my got my injuries out of the way when I was young. I the last, towards the end of spring training, I was a swinging bunt down the third base line, and the fielder fielded the ball and, and threw it on the run, and the ball sunk into the runner. And the point of the runner's shoe hit my uh, my ulna, my ulna uh, on my forearm, and broke it. So I started the season. I was out eight weeks. Uh, I was in a cast, and then I had to come back uh, into when the season was already in progress. I hit 256 there, and that was a learning. It was difficult. A lot of hard throwers in A-ball didn't know where it was going. Um, the competition level is a little better than mm-hmm. I, I think. You know, when you, you're you're playing against people from all over the all over the world, Latin America, and South America, United States, and uh, then but Double A the next year was uh, the most difficult year for me. I had the most difficult time in Double A. Uh, if I started seeing the slider for the first time, a right hander throwing the slider on my hands, and um, it was a big adjustment. I got off to a terrible start, and um, uh, you know, thank God, Bob Kennedy Sr. was the farm director. Yep. And I was hitting like 190, and I just was under under 200, and I really was ready to have a nervous breakdown. And I just thought my career was over. My, I had a, a problem with my wrist after I the, the forearm healed, and if I slid and my, my if I if I jolted my my uh, hand on a slide. I couldn't pick up a bat for around a week. And I just, I thought maybe my career was over. Eventually it went away, thank God. But um, I got hot and I remember it took, we had a double header, it was so hot in Little Rock. And we played a, a double header every Sunday there. And I went like six for eight and I got my average to 300. This is probably in uh, July. And, uh, I went home and took a bath, I remember, and uh, I think everything just came out of me. And I came back to the ballpark the next day and I was drained. I didn't know how to play every day, you know, back then. I was 19 years old and I was emotionally drained. And I went down, I went from 300 to 260. And I mean, I was going in the tank. And what does Bob Kennedy do? I get called into to, uh, Tom Burgess's office and he says, you're going up to Tulsa, AAA. You're going to meet the team in Wichita. I go, you're kidding. He goes, nope. He goes, go up there and have fun. They're, they're uh, 10 games under 500. They're going nowhere. Uh, Mike Fiore was the first baseman. No, it wasn't Mike Fiore. It was another year. Uh, he goes, you're going to play every day, and the team's going nowhere. So I get an airplane, fly to Wichita. Jack Kroll's the manager, calls me in the office and tells me, we're going nowhere. Just go out and have fun. Do what you can do. We know you can play. Well, I go out there in 35 games, and I hit 333, and I drive in almost, I drive in 30 runs, something like that. We turn around and win the win the division. The last day of the season, we we take a doubleheader from from the Cleveland team, uh, which was Oklahoma City, and we go into the playoffs, and we the mighty. Iowa Oaks, which was the White Sox, we beat them in seven games. We win the championship. That turned my career around. I remember running into Bob Kennedy years later after I was, you know, my career, and I was in the middle of my career, and I was having the success. And I asked him, "Why did you call me up?" 
And he said, Keith, I knew that you had it. I knew that you were something special. And if I had sent you down, it would have destroyed you. So I took the chance that Tulsa calling you up would make the difference. And sure enough, that's that's a big, big point of my career right yep. there. It wasn't for Bob Kennedy. It was, and then you have people in your life that are there yep. uh, when you need them. And uh, Bob Kennedy was one of them. And that basically saved my career. And how cool was it that when you finally got the call to the big leagues, you got to make your major league debut in your hometown? <laughs> I mean, now that, you know, you talk about moments or people, whatever it <clears> might be. I mean, how cool was that? It would have, it, it, it's cool, but it was stressful. Uh, you know, my dad was my, my batting instructor, taught us how to play, former minor league, minor league player. I didn't make it. I had to leave a lot of tickets. It would have been better to probably open up somewhere else with less stress. I mean, we were in Oklahoma when Ken Boyer was the manager in Tulsa that year in 74. Torrey had sprained his uh, thumb, and they didn't want to put him on the DL. It was a DL back then. And um, they called me up. Boyer called me in and said, you're going to play. Torrey's a day-to-day, and they need a first baseman. So who I meet them in Candlestick. I fly from Oklahoma City. And who do they make the roster move to, to make room for me is Tim McCarver. Tim McCarver no got released. Kidding. Wow. And you got, you got Bob Gibson on the team who pitched to him all those years. And Bob was tough. He was the, um, uh, you know, you were a plebe back then when you were a rookie and Gibson was rough and uh, just stayed away from him. But I played the three games in Candlestick, started. And uh, we lost two out of three, but I did okay. And... Um, Got my first hit there, and uh, then we went home, and Joe came back and played. And then Red sprinkled me in the lineup. That was the year we lost to the Pirates, the last game of the season for the division. We were in Montreal, and Red threw me and played me a lot. And I hit two, 291 with around 30, almost 40 at-bats. I did well, uh, but, boy, I was thrown right into a pennant race. And, boy, was that exciting with Lou Brock stealing bases. I remember we had a game and, and it was packed at Bush Stadium and uh, Lou, we were ahead beating the Phillies and Lou stole three bases, uh, two bases and tried for a third. And Bob Boone was catching and I'm sitting down by red. I'm standing on the steps far down towards home plate on the dugout. I didn't play that game. And Boone threw him out, and Boone was just screaming at Lou that, you know, it was like, you ate nothing, you're not supposed to steal. And, boy, I just, the excitement, and I said, boy, I want to be a part of this. This is what it's all about, this kind of competition and intensity. It just really, it just sent a message to me. It really is fascinating whether you talk to guys at high school athletics, college athletics, professional, very highest level, how, how there is – you know, there tends to be those moments in time, like you just described, where it sort of hits you, you know, um, whether it's a competition, whether it's the excitement, you know, with the energy, whatever it might be. Um, you, you, you become this star now in, in St. Louis. You win a batting title. You win an MVP. You win a World Series. Whitey Herzog comes in, and you've been asked about this a thousand times before. Uh, what happened with Whitey Herzog? Uh, you and him. Where where did it go south? Well, I probably got off on the wrong foot. I remember my good friend uh, 
Rusty Staub, who you know, of course, yep. uh, when I came to the Mets. I, uh, you know, Whitey called me in the offseason when he took over the ball club. He took it over midseason. Ken Boyer was fired. He managed. We are having a terrible year. It was 1980. And um, he managed for two weeks. And then he had Red Sandys take over the managerial uh, position. Um, and Whitey was also the GM and manager. That was part of his deal with the Cardinals. So he was both at both positions. And he went upstairs and observed as the GM. It wasn't on the field ever again. But offseason comes, and this is uh, before he makes the big trade where he trades Ted Simmons and Raleigh Fingers and Pete Vukovic over to Milwaukee. And um, which was a very controversial trade, but he, he, Whitey was a Whitey was a character out of a Faulkner book or a Mark Twain book, and um, he called me on the phone and, and he goes, uh, "I want would you go fishing with me?" And I want to I want to get together with you, and and I declined, and I said because my father always said you didn't want to be a kiss ass, and I just felt like I was. It would be like brown nosing, and I said, "You're the manager. I'm just a player." And I, and I, I didn't go, and that may have got us off on the wrong foot. Rusty said I was stupid. I should have gone fishing, um, and but um, anyway, that kind of got things off on the wrong foot. He came over, and George Brett was his bobo, and George Brett was the premier player. He's a great player, a, a Hall of Famer, of course, and he had George over there, and um, I was the batting title. And so it was me and George were the two, like, big, big hitters. And uh, as far as, well, George had more power than me. But uh, <clears throat> it was like, I felt like, um, I mean, he came up to me one time and said, uh, you don't take in, why do you insist that everybody take infield? And I never liked to take infield. I took my ground balls pregame and... Um, I took my ground balls very, very seriously all the time. I did my 15 minutes of work before every game, caught all the balls from my my infielders, and uh, I was a gold glover. That's the easy part of the game. You can blindfold me, and I can go out and, and pick it, and that's the easy part of the game for me. And he told me I didn't play. I, I, you know, I do. I would just go through the motions. I wouldn't lollygag. But I wouldn't play burnout, and I would conserve my energy. It's hot in St. Louis. And he kind of got on me about, uh, you don't take infield hard and throw the ball around. I said, why? That's a long season. I go, I'm not, I, I, I get my ground balls. I don't, I'm not going to waste any energy on, on infield. But he was old school. And that, back in those days, everybody loved to take infield. And I took infield every day. So uh, that was the rule. That was all there was to it. I did it, uh, but I didn't play burnout. And I just, I'm going to conserve my energy. I played 155, 52, 57 games a year in that, on AstroTurf in that heat. And uh, <clears throat> when I went over to New York, ironically, I asked Davey if I could not take infield at home because at home, actually on the road, because you took the last infield and then you had to come in, mm -hmm. change your shirt, and you had like 25 minutes for the game. And I really like to get that period of 45 minutes for the game after BP just to relax and prepare and go out and warm up. Uh, so um, I, I, things just kind of, I never felt that I was Whitey's kind of player. I, I've never felt really any warmth from him. Um, and, um, but you no, know, I loved playing for him. He was the best field manager I played for. Uh, he never made any mistakes. Uh, he was a great 
communicator with his team, teammates, uh, not his teammates, his players. And um, he just was really a terrific manager. It was an eye-opener for me. He made me a better ball player, taught me parts of the game that I, you know, I was trying to establish myself. And then the little things when you were established, now you can start, you know you're confident and you're going to be in the lineup. You're a star. You're a good player. And, you know, getting a runner over, driving, you know, doing the little things uh, to help win a ball game, particularly when it's late and close. Uh, he made us, he made our team uh world champions. I mean, he came over and took charge of that team and we needed leadership. We had a lot of young players. It was the changing of the guard. Lou Gibson had retired. Uh, Lou had just retired, Lou Brock. Uh, and it was a transformation at Gary Templeton. We had a lot of young players and uh, was sprinkled with Ted Simmons and uh, George Hendrick, veterans. Um, so we had Gene Tennis and Jim Cott. So, but we were basically the the foundation of that team was young and Whitey pretty much players want to be led. And he was, I don't, I don't think we, we win the, the world series if Whitey wasn't our manager. You know, I, you, you try to put it into context today and I don't know if there's a player that I could, could, <clears throat> could draw an analogy to, but for, for, for fans, you know, that are, that are a little younger than you and me, I mean, it, it's trying to now look at a situation where you were, I mean, here you were, you'd been an MVP, You'd won a World Series. You're winning a gold glove every year. You're extraordinarily popular with the fans. They announce a trade on the Jumbotron at Bush Stadium, and the place goes mm. crazy. I mean, they cannot believe that they have just heard that Keith Hernandez is traded. And not only <coughs> traded, Keith, you, you're traded to a team that is a horrible team in the New York Mets yes. and had been horrible for nearly a decade. What were you thinking? Um, well, I was not happy about it. I mean, the Mets, since they traded Seaver, they traded Seaver in 77. They were perennial last place team. They were, um, and I really feel that Whitey, uh, I think, was uh, trying to put me, to bury me in that Siberia. Yep. And it, um, I went over there. Uh, it was a, that that eighty three. I played the second half of the season with uh, with the Mets, and it was very unsettling. I was going uh, ready to go through a divorce. The marriage was falling apart, um, and uh, there was a lot of bad things going on in my life at that point, and which affected my play. Um, I think it's important to note that um, when we won the World Series in eighty two. I had achieved everything in baseball. I had won an MVP. I'd won a batting title. I'd won gold gloves. I was an all-star. The last thing I hadn't attained, which was a team effort, was a World Series. And I'll be honest with you, in 83, when I came back, I was lacking. You know, I, I needed um, another goal, and I was just flat. And I, I admit to that. And I remember going up to George Hendrick in Atlanta. I respect it very much, and I asked George about it, and George told me, Keith, every player goes through it. You're in the kind of in the middle of your career. You've done everything now. He goes, you'll get past this, and you'll get rejuvenated and re-energized. It'll, it's just, it's a passing phase. Uh, that was right before the trade. So um, I was not playing well. I was in a slump, and um, the rumors were swirling, and I just didn't know where I was going. So. Uh, uh, 
when he called me in the office uh, during BP on the 15th, we were playing at home. Um, and I took my ground balls, and he called me in right when my group was going to go hit. So I, oh yeah, I think he did that on purpose. So I went out and got all the, I did all my ground balls and got all my throws, and we hit first. Or the, the one, two, three in the lineup, one, two, three, four in the lineup, hitting in group one after the after the bench players, and uh, that's when I got called in. So I knew I was going to get traded. I went in the office and. He said, we traded you. And I said, well, where? And he goes, New York. I go, New York. He goes, yeah, um, we needed pitching. It was for Neil Allen and Rick Ombi. I, okay, fine. Neil Allen was a pretty good pitcher. And um, I didn't know anything about Ombi. He was a minor league player. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, basically got on the phone with Frank Cashin and blah, blah, blah. And I really struggled through. I mean, I did well for the Mets. I, I didn't do great, but I hit 300 for the remainder of the season. And uh, I had to make a decision in the offseason whether I wanted to stay or not. And um, fortunately, my father, during the strike year, uh, in 81 was the strike year, the yep. longest strike in baseball yep. history where you had the two seasons. And we won. If you cut the seasons in half, we won the division in both halves, I believe. And uh, or we oh no, we had the best record, something like that. Uh, we had the best record overall. And baseball decided who won the first half and who won the second half. And we finished second in both first and second half. We didn't go to the postseason. Whitey was livid, absolutely livid. And um, uh, we wound up winning the next year in 82, obviously. Uh, but anyway, going back to New York, I remember John Stearns called me, the catcher then. He said, Keith, um, they got a lot of young players down there and I I think you should stay. They've really not wasted their their draft picks. They've, they're ready to come up and play. And then Mike Phillips was our backup shortstop in St. Louis. And Mike told me, he played in New York. And Mike told me, Keith, you're going to love New York. And New York was a rest town for me because it was, you know, when I played in the 70s, it was going broke. It was bankrupt. Yeah, It was a dangerous yep. place. And, you know, really, I just stayed in the, in the hotel, hotel bar, and didn't really go out but maybe a handful, not even a handful of times, once or twice in my eight years in St. Louis. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, those two guys with that, and my father, who I had bought a dish for so he could watch me play, those old big dishes that you could put up on the roof. Mm -hmm. And during the strike, he watched uh, baseball. He watched the minor leagues. I think ESPN was televising minor league games, and he saw Daryl. Strawberry, he saw Dwight Gooden, he saw these guys and he just called me and I said, you know, I think you should stay. I think they can, these guys are very talented down at, down in the minor leagues and AAA level. I saw them play. So that's why I decided to stay. It was basically my dad. I said, I've made so many bad decisions in my life. Uh, my dad always seemed to be upright and uh, on the ball. And, you know, for a guy with a high school education, a very intelligent man. And um, I said, oh, I, my, I remember saying to myself, I'm going to stay because of, because of dad. And uh, I called immediately called Frank Cashin and said, I'm staying. And uh, we started negotiating the, for a contract. Best decision I ever made. You know, it, it, it's interesting because you, you look back on those teams, and, and I remember that's really right when my broadcasting career was getting started, when you guys were really starting to get it rolling. Gooden had come up set the world on fire. Everybody knew about Strawberry. I'm not sure how many people knew about the Lenny Dykstra's and the Tim Tuffles or the Ron Darlings or the Sid Fernandez or any, but I mean, 
When you look back, and I remember the first major league game I ever broadcast was at Shea Stadium uh, in 1987. And Strawberry hits a home run to win the game off John Franco, <coughs> off the scoreboard out in right field. And I thought to myself, and look, I didn't know shit about shit, right? But, I mean, I'm just sitting there, and I'm looking at this team, and I'm going, man, th- this is a really good team. There was an edge to that team. Uh, and, and I really <coughs> think you were the guy that brought the edge to that club. That, that, that it was almost like you were playing with a chip on your shoulder a little bit. Is that a fair assessment? Well, um, you certainly want to prove everybody wrong that when they make when they trade you. Um, so that I, you know, going to the Mets did give me another goal that I needed for the second half of my career, and um, I walked right into a gold mine of talent. And I realized that two weeks into spring training in uh, 1984 was my first full season. Uh, I knew that there was we weren't that far away. Um, there were other guys. I think Mookie Wilson sent the tone. He was a hustler. Uh, Lenny Dykstra was scrappy. Wally Backman was scrappy. We had Ray Knight, but Ray was gone in '87. But we had a we had a, a, a really plucky group that uh, were. We got in a lot of fights in 86. I mean, we weren't liked because of the curtain call. And I remember my first home run, there was no one in the stadium in 83 in the second half. And uh, people are, it had to be, what, four or 5,000 people mm-hmm. in the ballpark. And they're standing up and Rusty goes, you got to go take a bow. I go, what? Take a bow? I'm not going to show up the pitcher. He goes, you're not going to show up the pitcher. This is what we do here. You have to do it. So I got him, took my, that always pissed off a lot of people. And, uh, you know, Lenny had that kind of cock of the walk and Wally was that way too and rubbed people the wrong way. Uh, but that, I think, appealed to uh, New York Met fans. I think the Yankees are kind of the Wall Street kind of team. Uh, they were always had the back page of the sports, uh, the, of the papers, which is where the sports was. And I think the Mets were always kind of the blue collar underdog team. And... It's a National League town. They're dying for a National League, a New York National League team uh, to win. And particularly with the drought since the trade of Seaver. And they took to us. And uh, I think we represented New York. Uh, We got dirty and played hard. And we were a good team. We should have won more. 87, we should have won. We had, uh, you know, Doc didn't come out of the season, didn't didn't start the season with us. We lost Roger McDowell in spring training with appendicitis. He had to get an operation. We missed him for the first month. We lost all of our pitchers, starting pitchers, which were phenomenal uh, at one point in the season. And we had such a great offense that Frank Cashin never made a move. We had AAA pitchers out there that came up uh, and pitched for us. But we were just so potent offensively. Um, I know if we'd have stayed, been healthy, I think we would have won in 87. That's the one year that really bothers me. But that competition with those St. Louis teams uh, in 85, uh, they won 102, and we won, we won 90 to 8, and we went home. In <clears throat> 87, 86, we win going away. 87, we lose the last week of the season to them. We both win 90 plus games. Uh, it was those three years of competition uh, were unbelievable. And uh, you could, you, it was just so much fun. And everybody, the Shea Stadium was filled up. It was just a lot of excitement. So 
I'm kind of drifting here, so get me back on. No, 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 no. no. I, I just, you know, I, 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 I want to focus a little bit more on just a couple, a couple of names uh, and situations from those Mets days. Um, I always used to say uh, you, you had moved on by then, and I get the job with the Cubs, and I'm down in the visitors' clubhouse every day to come down and meet with a manager or some of the players. Of the it was a different time. I mean, you could, you, you could be down there in the visitors' clubhouse and you could smoke a cigarette and have a cup of coffee and nobody gave a hoot, right? I mean, it was those kind of days, right? And, and I remember, for whatever reason, I, I, I really hit it off with, with Gooden and Strawberry. I, I really liked them as guys. <coughs> I, I thought they were very pleasant, well-mannered, soft-spoken, engaging guys. And then they would leave Chicago – uh, and you'd read about something happening to one of them, whether it was drugs, whether it was a domestic thing, whatever it was. And I think to myself, God, I, I can't believe that's the same guy. You went through, you know, your similar issues like a lot of people do in life. Um, you know, Strawberry ain't good. Did, did they strike you as the same way they struck me? Because I was shocked when I would hear about some of the things that would then happen to them in subsequent years. Well, Doc was a that you were correct in your assessment of both of them. They uh, they're wonderful guys. It just went down the wrong path. Doc was a big shock, um, and uh, he's the one that still to this day has his has his demons. And his and, but Daryl's turned into a you know a Baptist minister and does a lot of good work for with drug rehab for for young kids and does a lot of good work. Um. I don't know. Daryl was um, liked to be like Reggie, uh, I guess, or Reggie Jackson, he the, to be the, the swirl around him. Um, Doc, like I said, uh, when that came down, what, uh, everybody was just completely, completely shocked. And um, it was very unfortunate because he, you know, I, I remember playing behind him and I'm going, now I know what it's like to play behind Bob Feller. Tom Seaver, Sandy Koufax, the you know Lefty Grove, the great pitchers. I had that part of my career where that rookie year for him, 84, 85, was a phenomenal Cy Young year for him. And even after, he was still striking out a lot of people. To play behind him was really, really something special. And uh, very fortunate to be able to experience and see all those starts from my perspective at first base and be a part of it. Uh, but, you know, they're all, uh, you know, their careers are over now. It's gone. And, um, you know, Daryl, to me, was uh, could have hit 500 home runs. Uh, he was just unbelievable talent. You saw him play. He was incredible. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's unfortunate. But I'm glad that uh, he's gotten his life together and um, he's doing well. And, you know, I haven't seen, I don't see Doc very much. But the last time I saw him, he looked good. And, um, you know, you always you know, kind of pray for him and um, wish the best for him. And I think he's doing okay. Well, look, you were able to get through some some similar issues, Keith, in your life. <clears throat> I, I mean, you know, look, um, I, you know, look I, I mean, I, I, I've learned it, you know, the hard way. And, I mean, you know, people <clears throat> want to be judge and jury about everything. And I don't think it's anybody's job last time I checked to be judge and jury uh, in, in terms of gauging other people's lives. Uh, I've always thought that, that, the, 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 that some of the things you went through, I, I think it's amazing 
uh, and I say this with the utmost sincerity and, 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 and complimentary fashion that, look, you know, everybody goes through whatever they, they go through. How did, how did you get through it all? Um, baseball. Baseball was my, uh, my sanctuary, uh, the ballpark. Um, I, could, I was uh, going through a divorce. I took my divorce. to I, I left in 80, winter of 83, 84, and my divorce wasn't ever finalized until 87. Um, and that was hanging over my head. Um, you know, uh, also the issue, and I was part of the Pittsburgh trials and, uh, you know, I just messed around for a couple years, uh, just a little bit here and there, nothing crazy, but I can tell you that, you know, uh, it, cocaine is not a, a, a PED. It is a, it is a career destroyer. And, um, I realized that, and that's what enabled me to get away from it. I knew I had to, and I think getting traded to <clears throat> um, New York helped because it was like all of a sudden I had a new identity. I mean, a new team, a new bunch of guys, new organization. Uh, the the uh, when I got traded in '83, that stuff hadn't hit the papers yet, so it was. Uh, uh, when it did happen, and I got the phone call from the FBI in '84. It was like I was my in my past. I, I got away from it. It was over. It was, that chapter of my life was done. And, and then all of a sudden, here it comes, pops up again. And, and so I went, oh. So that was tough. And But I always was able to go out on the field and forget everything. Baseball was the most important thing in my life. When I was five years old, I realized uh, when my father had... Uh, sawed off a little league bat and started throwing tennis balls to us that uh, I wanted to be a big league ball player. And that was my goal and uh, my one desire in my whole life. <clears throat> and um, remember, I mean, I was dialed into things like all in the family and the Jeffersons and all this and then shows in subsequent years. Right. Okay. So I've never seen Seinfeld. <clears throat> I work with all these young guys here in the studio and they're like, dude, you got to ask him about Seinfeld. And then I start reading in preparation of this where Larry David, of course, who was very involved in that whole thing with Seinfeld, uh, has gone on to say, TV Guide goes on to say, the episode you were in, which I think was called The Spitter, right? Is no, one the, of boyfriend. The, the, uh, the Boyfriend. The uh, Boyfriend was one of, the, uh, one of the best episodes of any television show of all time. That's according to TV right. Guide. What was that right. experience like? <clears throat> Well, I, I think it was 90. I retired in 91. My, I was out all 1991. Uh, I had back surgery and my career was over. But I was active on the roster. So I think it was 93 of that show or 94. I'm not sure. I think 93. And it was, I think, the second year of the show, if I'm correct. Or maybe the third. I'm not sure. The show had really had not taken off. Um, and Larry David told me after we did it... Um, uh, it was a one week uh, in LA and I had never acted before, never wanted to act. Uh, Jerry was a Met fan. I was one of his favorite players. Uh, he conceived the idea. Uh, Larry David's a Yankee fan. So they collaborated and there was a lot of, uh, there was three other writers too. <clears throat> they told me, Larry told me after that they knew they had a hit show and they wanted to use it on sweeps, which you know is Mm -hmm. where the big advertisers are. And that's why it was an hour show. They show it in two episodes now, but it was an hour during sweeps. 
and they knew that they had a winner and it was all larry said we didn't tell you but it was all hinging on you if you were a stiff it was just we were going to use it in season <laughs> it was going to be a half hour show if you just if you if you if you did okay if you if you if you held up okay we had the extra uh subplot which was george getting uh, going for unemployment and then going out with the daughter of the unemployment girl uh the uh, the, uh, the gal and uh, the mother uh, going out with the daughter and then getting her a autograph baseball from me and that was the whole subplot that they added to make it an, uh, an hour and it can use on sweeps <clears throat> i had never acted um jerry for some reason did not call the mets <clears throat> he called my my final my agent was scott boris and i hadn't i had no need for scott anymore i was out of the game and i haven't heard from scott and scott's a family friend by the way he played a ball with my brother they were roommates in st petersburg the florida state league so scott's a very good family friend and um uh he calls me and says uh you want to Got a call from this show. He didn't know what the show was. We don't watch primetime because we play night games. You know, we, all the primetime right. shows, we're in, a, we're in the middle of a ball game. And I had not heard of the Seinfeld show. He goes, there's a sitcom. They want you to come and uh, do, do a part in it. And I said, I go, well, what's the show? He goes, Seinfeld. And I go, it's, he goes, it's a sitcom. I go, he goes, you got, you got it's minor minor role, probably minimal lines. And I said, well, how much are they going to pay me? And he said, well, they'll fly you first class to L.A., put you up at the hotel, pay you 15 grand. I said, sure, for a week, 15 grand. Just kidding. <laughs> and uh, uh, they FedExed the script to me. I got it on Friday. And I got it oh, priority in the morning. And there it was. And I start opening up the pages. And I realize I'm the guest star. And I've got a lot of lines. And I had become friendly in New York with Marsha Mason, uh, the actress yeah. I met up at Elaine's, the famous Elaine's, and Marsha was living in New Mexico. And I called her on the phone. I said, Marsha, I just got myself in hot water here. I'm, I've I explained to her, and she, she told me how to memorize the lines, which was do line one, then line one, line two, then line one, line two, line three. Make sure you do it before you go to bed because it, it, it absorbs. You get up in the morning, have your coffee, do it again. So um, I fly Saturday to Los Angeles. I have Sunday off. Monday's the first day, and they're all meeting on this big, long, rectangular chair, the, the principal actors um, and um, Larry David and the three writers, and they're going over the script. And I, I'm going, oh, my gosh. And um, they're all interacting and Larry David gave a lot of leeway. You know, uh, they had input from the from uh, Julia, uh, Jason, <clears throat> and Michael. Um, and then, but Larry made the ultimate decision on what changes or additions or subtractions were made on the script. The first day that we started doing with the script on uh, in the afternoon on Monday. And then on Tuesday, we're with the script and they're doing the blocking and the lighting. And I'm realizing now uh, I better get this, my act together because uh, they're going to be, we're done on Saturday and then Sunday's off and then they go on to the next show. So I can't hold up production. 
and I had memorized my lines and um, I got through it. I mean, I remember that when we did it uh, at five o'clock, all the suits came in. It was NBC. I think it was on NBC. Yep. And they were kind of like the ones that were going to approve the script. Uh, they were the censors. And we did the whole run through in front of them in the studio and uh, in chronological order. And I didn't make a mistake. Uh, then the audience came in and um, there was around maybe 200, 150 people. Like this, this the, the set ran uh, from left to right here. On the left was the coffee shop. And then the next over, right next to it was Jerry's apartment. And then such, and the cameras could run right through and you can go from one set to the other. So the cameras above were like Little League or baseball seats, bleacher seats. And I was just in front of a live audience. And Jerry looked at me before he went on and said, what are you nervous about? You, you perform in front of 50,000 people. There's only 250 people here, 100 people. And I said, Jerry, I, I, had, I hit a baseball. I didn't have to memorize lines. So the funny part about it, uh, the first scene when I meet him in the gym with uh, Jason uh, and uh, I don't think Michael was in that scene. I'm not sure. I forget. Um, they changed that scene the most. And right that before that, they changed it again. And I had memorized not only my lines. I memorized if I interacted with whoever mm -hmm. I was interacting. I knew their lines. And I knew, okay, here's Jerry, here's Jason, now it's my turn, my line. And then I went to Michael, so that's how I, I knew all, all. When they changed that first scene, that interrupted the whole sequence for me. And I went out and I flubbed my line on the opening scene in front of a live audience. And I went, oh my God. And I <laughs> so cut and go back. And I come out and I didn't screw up the rest of the way I did it, I got through it. I and mean, I was just so nervous after when it was all done, uh, we went back Saturday the next day and did it in studio and all the pressure was off because studio, just the camera, you can cut the, and, and, and uh, then I'd spend an extra week in LA because I was just so exhausted. I went down to shutters on the beach and stayed a whole week in LA and just laid in the sun and uh, recovered. <laughs> Keith, I can't thank you enough, man, for your time today. Uh, you have a lot of other people and a lot more important things going on to join us on this show. But I certainly appreciate uh, your friendship through the years, all your support, and, uh, and for reaching out with a very kind note the other day. And uh, wish you nothing but the best, man. Godspeed ahead. Well, good. You know, Phil Mushnicker for The Post wrote a very nice little piece, and I couldn't agree with it more. And hopefully you get back in the booth where you belong. All right. Keith, thanks for the time, man. You take care of yourself. Okay, you got it. Keith Hernandez, kind enough to join us, man. I, I can't tell you how much I, I, I just, for the, a lot of you not old enough to remember, I, that, that guy, man. I mean, there are a lot of gamers, and we like to refer to ourselves as Nutcutter Nation here on this show. That guy was Nutcutter Nation. I mean, he had Strawberry and Doc Good and all these guys. He was a guy, the last guy that you wanted coming to the plate if you were rooting for the other team and the game was on the line against the Cardinals or the Mets. I wish we could add more time to get into that whole Whitey Herzog thing because, like I said earlier, to try to put that into context, it'd be almost like Votto being in the middle of that run 
where he was the MVP, teams really good. Let's say the Reds had won a World Series, had won a World Series. Now, Votto and Keith Hernandez were two very different guys as people. But as far as players, very similar guys. I don't mean in the number of home runs or whatever. I'm just talking about you don't want to face Votto with a game on the line. You didn't want to face Hernandez with a game on the line. And they were both going to bring it morning, noon, and night every day they put on a uniform. You just heard him talk about it. But imagine Votto at the top of his game. And all of a sudden, you're sitting at Great American Ballpark, and they put up on the Jumbotron, Joey Votto has just been traded to the New York Mets. That's what happened with Keith Hernandez in the 1980s with the St. Louis Cardinals. He's the most popular guy on the team. They won the World Series. He's winning gold gloves. He won an MVP. He wins a batting title. He's an all-star every year. And then all of a sudden, bang. They put up on the board that Joey Votto's traded to the New York Mets. Or in maybe more accurate terms today of where they were, take the market size away. No, similar mark. Traded to the Chicago White Sox. White Sox are terrible and have been since they won the World Series years ago. Right? Terrible. Um, and that's what it would be like. And uh, gosh, I love watching that guy play. And I can promise you Tracy Jones is going to feel the same way when he joins us here in a minute. So uh, Ham and Eggers, take it away. And um, Ham and Eggers. You're on. Seinfeld. It's that type of the show, the ham and eggers. These guys are great. Trust me. I would know. I introduce all the best segments. Handing it off. Yes. All right, everybody. Time to talk about the, let's call it, what are we calling it? Oh, the Tracy Jones report, because Tracy Jones is going to be on here in about five minutes. Encore Technologies uh, sponsors the Tracy Jones report. And it provides IT solutions for a data-centered world with a suite of services from mobile computing to desktop to data center. And it supports both centralized and work-from-home computing models to improve efficiency and productivity. Visit Encore.tech. The path to innovation begins here. Finally got through the water bottle here today, and we have some more Pani Water right here. Pani Water is the official water partner of the River's Edge Concert Series, and it is a new premium alkaline water Tastes fantastic. It's made right across the street, right here in Hamilton. It uses natural limestone filtration, unlike the artificial processing that many other brands use. And the result is a healthy alkaline water that is also the best tasting water in the world. You can visit their website at pawneywater.com. That is P-A-H-H-N-I water.com. P-A-H-H-N-I water.com to see where you can buy it. Drink Pawnee Water, get your coffee from UDF, bet with Brett Fred, and get your technology solutions from Encore.tech. Tracy Jones coming up in just a minute. We will have Bud Black, the manager of the Rockies. He's coming on tomorrow's show, so make sure you tune in to that. That should be right at the top of the show, right around 10, 10, 15, because play a day game tomorrow. Game's at 12.35 tomorrow, so got to get Bud Black on real quick. Get him on, get it, get him in here and get him on out of here. Um, that'll be a interview to on tomorrow's show again Wednesday's show Bud Black um, also we have the discord link if you're in the chat we have a lot of people right now in the discord a lot of new users from chatterbox red so if you're in the chat you want to join the discord you can do that 
kind of keeps the YouTube chat discussion going through the rest of the day, I guess you could say, the Reds games, everything else. And make sure you like the stream. We have 79 likes right now. Like to get that to 100. Make sure you go back in there, like the stream, and then uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Podcasts. You can download the podcast, Chatterbox Reds. There are three Reds podcasts in the top 12 of Apple Podcasts right now. 25% of the top 12 is the Cincinnati Reds, and Chatterbox Reds is one of those. One of the 12 best podcasts for baseball in the country, Chatterbox Reds. Uh, you can go subscribe to it, download it. And whether you're listening to this show, Chatterbox Reds, whatever Chatterbox show you're listening to, leave a rating and a review. It really helps out the algorithm of the show and everything else. So baseball that is – look. Three pods in the top 12 of all baseball podcasts. That's a baseball town. Not only is it a baseball town, it is – you want to talk about America's team. I mean, the America – the United States charts, baseball charts. Led by the Red Legs. Three of the top 12. Nobody has more – Podcasts in the top 12 than the Cincinnati Reds. Joey Chatterbox Reds is one of them. SVP last night. I watched that on the way. Okay, wait, wait. It's going to sound bad. I had the video playing on the way into work today. I did not watch it. I was driving, but I listened to it on the no, way into work save. today. Yes. <laughs> Pretty cool. Not watching. But uh, yeah, it was fantastic. Couldn't tell you the last time I saw a Red as the marquee interview on a national program. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I mean, when you think about what's going on right now between the Reds, the Bengals, FC Cincinnati, Xavier, you know, getting Sean Miller back, UC going into the Big 12, there is a lot going on right now uh, in this city that is a lot of fun, and it's an exciting time to be around here. So, uh, that's all on our end. All right. All right. Um, I, you know, look, I, I, I've said I disagree with uh, – I think there are a lot of Reds fans out there. And there are different ways to define a baseball town. Uh, but I still stand by w w what I said. And, and, and look, um, I look at it as and I don't tell anybody how to spend their money. I say that all the time on the show. I don't want anybody to tell me how to spend my money, and I'm not going to tell anybody else or judge anybody else about how they spend their money. But all I do is, when I say Cincinnati is not a great baseball town, all I do is, is I say they're the oldest baseball town. They have the oldest baseball franchise. I think the Reds have incredibly smart, informed, knowledgeable baseball fans. I think there is a passion for baseball in this town. But I always use the example. Look no further than the Big Red Machine. They never drew more than 2.7 million fans in a season. And they played in a stadium that sat with standing room only 58, 57,000 people. I, 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 I'm not, not going to buy it. Um, it doesn't mean that people don't care about this. That's not what I'm saying. I think everybody in your town, regardless of what the sport is, everybody loves a winner. Yep. Right? I mean, you know, the, the, the Bengals weren't drawing flies down there before Norm Marvin Lewis came to town. And even after he came to town, I did a number of games for Fox where they played the crummy Tampa Bay Buccaneers and play some other teams. And you were lucky to have 42, 43,000 down there, right? Yep. 
in a once-every-other-week event kind of thing. Now you can't get a ticket to a Bengals game, right? right? All right, well, you can still get a ticket to a Reds game. In fact, you can get about 20-something thousand of them if you want to shell out the money for tonight. <laughs> all right, so, I mean, I'm not going to get – look, I'm all into what they got going on at Sir Boy Wonder. <laughs> are the Reds better than last year? I, I would say they probably are. <laughs> That would probably be about as safe an answer as you could possibly get. They are better than they were last year. Um, make sure, but I mean, a lot, a lot of people uh, telling me I'm out of my mind. Um, about Cincinnati being a baseball town. And, and, and Nick Kirby says 81 games versus eight. I, I I'm well aware of that. I, I, I think I've got that part figured out. But, uh, and Nick knows I love him. I, I understand that. The analogy I'm making is, is that everybody loves a winner. And when the Bengals weren't winning, nobody cared. When the Reds aren't winning, nobody cares. And I can make an argument that there have been a lot of times in the past where they were winning and nobody cared at least as far as defining cared as showing up to the ballpark. Best 30 minutes of television, we welcome in former Red Leg. That would be our main man, Tracy Jones. Tracy, all the, all the love fest going on right now for the Red Legs. It really is amazing. You know, Tom, I got to tell you, I think they deserve it. I yep. really like this team. And let me, let me throw this out. I'm going to say what I see from this team. Okay. They remind me of a bunch of dirt bags. Do you know what a dirt bag is a reference yes. to in baseball? You know what I'm talking about. I'm wearing my yes. Long Beach State uh, hat. That's the dirt bags. Dirt bags, people, are players that bust their ass, that can do the little things. They can run, they can bunt, they show a lot of enthusiasm. And to me, this is exactly what this team is. It's all about, it's almost like Tom, a college team. You yep. know what I mean? The enthusiasm right. that they have. I would not be surprised that this team wins the division by 10 games. I, I'm that positive on them. I, I just think they have something going on. You get Votto back. And by the way, how dare you people? How dare you take shots at Joey Votto? This guy's a Hall of Famer. I was going to get in there and, and do the whole stats thing with Joey Votto. I've done that before. That, that's right. Joey Votto is a very good hitter. Best all-around hitter the Reds have ever had. And what I'm seeing from Joey Votto, Tom, is, and I watched a few of his at-bats in Louisville, looks like he's gained some weight. And I like that. I thought he was too skinny a couple of years ago. He's more straight up in his stance. He's yep. raising his leg. He's got really good timing. And you know how he used to go, try to go oppo taco? He's not doing oppo taco. He's spin to win. And I'm very impressed with what I've seen with Joey Votto. I've probably seen about the last 15 at-bats. He's really swearing the ball up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, his first three at-bats last night, he hit the ball harder in each of those three at-bats than he did all but one or two at-bats last year when he clearly was playing yeah. hurt. I mean, there's no debate about that um you know tracy i i made the comment at the beginning um there there are moments and you weren't around uh when johnny bench was winding his career you didn't miss him by much but he was winding yeah. down and you were coming up 
Uh, and, and for a lot of fans old enough to remember, taking away some of the you know, big red machine stuff and, and, and winning a World Series, although they won their World Series on the road, they never won it at home in 75 or 76. But, um, you know, and Jay Bruce's home run to clinch a Central yep. Division title in 2010. But last night was one of those moments um, where, it, it, and I likened it to Bench's final home game at Riverfront Stadium, when in his final game, Johnny Bench Knight, he hit a home run. Joe Nuxall would go on to say that was the most incredible single moment that he could ever remember being a part of Reds franchise history. Uh, I think a lot of people are going to feel that way last night about Votto coming up, the big ovation his first time up, second at bat hitting the home run. Uh, unforgettable. I think it was. I mean, I was there when uh, Barry Larkin, we thought, was going to have his last at bat. Yep. And he got that st- You remember that game? Yep. It was a day game, if I remember I was right. doing that game for Fox. I think it was a Saturday afternoon, and there yes. were signs and banners all over the stadium. Trade deadline was coming up. People thought they were going to trade him and not sign him to a deal, right? Right. And Carl Lindner was in there. Yep. The owner at the time was there. He watched it and said, you know what? I'm going to sign Barry Larkin. To a, I think it was a three-year contract, yep. which turned out to be a bad deal. I yep. mean, there's that multi-year deals that always come back to haunt you. And if you don't look, just take a look at the Mets, what they've done: three hundred fifty million dollars, and they're four games under five hundred. And here you have the Reds, third lowest payroll, and they're in first place. The Diamondbacks, the Rays, the Twins. So I mean, some of these idiot billionaires that spend their money—it's it's kind of crazy that they're billionaires and just throw away their money. But the, the Reds got something going on. Joey Votto, Tom, did you listen to his uh, uh, press conference after the game? Well, I, really we, we, we ran his interview with Jim Day. We did not run the entire press conference. Well, what, what stood out to you? Well, here's what stood out is he measures his words very carefully. Yes. I mean, I don't know what his IQ is. Uh, it's probably a lot lower than mine, but he's up there. I mean, he's not a... He's not up there. But he talked about having to perform with these guys. A lot different than he just can't blend in. He's got to step up and produce. And this is totally different baseball than going back, you know, a few years that he could just walk in and play. He's got to produce. But he said, that's what I like. That's what I enjoy. I enjoy that pressure. So I'm going to be excited to watch him play because what I'm seeing from his, his stance, his approach, he looks really good to me. He looks really good. I agree. I, I thought the same thing last night, not before the home run. I, I was really paying attention when he came up there with the bases loaded um, yeah. and they were down a run because you, you knew he was getting a hit. You, 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 yeah. you just knew. You could tell by the way Stan at the plate, he, he was going to get a hit. And, uh, and he did. Uh, and, and that gave the Reds a lead. They go on to win the game. Tracy, now look, um, you and I have gotten into this debate on this show before. Yeah. Um, and I got to tell you, um, you said it a second ago. Uh, I said it before, just like you did. I look at their competition. I look at the talent level of their competition inside yep. the division. I yep. look at the Brewers. Yep. I look at the Pirates. I look at the Cubs. I look at the Cardinals. And I say to myself, it would now, the, the, the worm is turned, as they like to say. Right? The worm is turned. I look yeah. and I see a team that it will be a disappointment if they don't make oh. the playoffs, in my opinion. Without, without a doubt. I mean, they're on a roll. 
And you look at the te- – I mean – Look at that Brewers lineup. Do you know those players, Tom? Well, I mean, I mean Tracy, I, I went down their lineup yesterday on this show. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what in the hell has happened. And I brought this up about Bregman yeah. and Altuve in Houston. W- what yeah. has happened to some of these guys who two years ago, the national press was telling me all about how great all of them are and how they're hitting the prime of their career and they're going to be future Hall of Famers. I mean, if you took away the name on the back of his jersey, Altuve wouldn't even be in the Houston lineup on a good team. He's hitting 210, all right? Isn't it? I mean, seriously. If he were some guy you just brought up, Bregman was hitting 240 before he had a good game um, against the Reds on Sunday. Yelich, I mean, what's happened to him? And then I I went through that Milwaukee batting order yesterday. They don't have a guy in that lineup right now except for Yelich. I'd give him a little bit of rope. But they don't have a guy in that lineup that would start on this Reds team for me right now. Not one besides Yelich. The only talented team, name-wise, are the Cardinals, and they're 13 games under 500. We used to have a saying all the time, uh, a guy by the name of Jimmy Hoff who was my A-ball coach. He was head of the minor leagues for the Reds. And he would always say, you never know. Yep. You never know. And in the game of baseball, hell, Tom, I thought this team would lose 100 games. I really did. And and to turn it around like that and have a couple players, uh, you know, that uh, McDaniel it is awesome, right? I mean. He, McLean. McLean you're talking about. McLean. Yeah, McLean. He is an outstanding ball, a kind of a scrappy yep. dirtbag type guy. Adela Cruz. I mean, they just go on and on. I mean, um, Abbott. How good is Abbott? Yep. How good is Abbott? Okay. <laughs> so let, let me ask you, Tom. Let, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this because you brought this up. You know, you get to the playoffs, and I know we're into June, <laughs> but I like to project. I mean, that's not a bad rotation of green. Abbott and Lodolo, who I think's coming back in a month. And uh, I, I, I've no. said it before, Tracy. I, I, you know, look, and I'm saying the same thing about Hunter Green, and I hope and pray that I'm wrong. Yeah, I've not been wrong about Lodolo. I, I've made the point on this show, and I'm not patting myself on the back. Uh, whether it's because of HIPAA or or whatever, I don't believe a word about anything when it comes to injuries anymore. The teams tell the press, I don't believe it. I said it at the time about Lodolo. This ain't some calf thing, okay? That's what they told us uh, initially. Then we find out you're talking about bones in his shin and right behind his shin. I mean, he was last seen on the last homestand still moving around in one of those, you know, the, the, one of those little scooter things because he couldn't put weight on his foot. They're not getting Lodolo back for a long time. I mean, he's a month and a half minimum because you know how it goes. They got to send him down the minor leagues and build up arm strength. It's like he never threw all winter. It's basically the way he's going to have to go back out on rehab. But but I'm with you, though, in theory. But but Green, now he goes on the injured list. I don't know what to believe about Green. I read a week and a half ago that they backed him up uh, nine days. He starts in Houston, pitches well. But clearly something wasn't there because he only struck out three batters. He strikes out eight just showing up on the mound, right? Right. So, okay, pitches one game, pitches six innings, pitches well. And now all of a sudden he's going on the injured list? But anyway, 
Um, yeah. I'm, I'm I mean, with you, so what does I'm that with mean? You. What I'm that with mean? you in that I agree that if they were to find a way to swing a deal, and that's where I want to get to you here in a second. Yeah. If yeah. they were to swing a deal, and we brought up the name that's tossed around quite a bit in, in Shane Bieber. Outstanding pitcher for the for the Guardians, um, and you know they're under 500, crappy division like the Reds, but you know they're not going anywhere at the end of the day. Um, if you can make that deal, and now all of a sudden, you know I'm gonna put Lodolo on the side just for a minute. If you all of a sudden went into a best of five or a best of seven series, and your three front starters are Bieber, Green. Abbott, I think you could beat anybody in the National League. Nice. I mean, and, and because those guys, one, they have really, really good stuff. They have yep. shutdown stuff. I mean, you could make an argument they're all three number ones if they were to pull that trade. That's exactly. But what do you give up for Bieber? I mean, that's that's going to take a Marte. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, that's I, I don't know that. That's not my area. But you definitely got to add a pitcher here. I, I really think you do. A starter. Well, you've changed your mind on this a little bit now, then, it sounds like to me. I did. I did. But at least I had the courage to come out on this show and say that I am wrong. Uh, I, I thought that they could trade Diaz and get three frontline pitchers, right? I, I talked about the Johnny Cueto trade going back yep. a few years ago, which was yep. a disastrous trade. But that type of idea. But what I'm seeing with the Reds, they're there. It, it's not next year. It's not the year after that. It's right now, and I and I think they have the players to do it. They have something going on that that team chemistry that I used to think was corny. But let me throw this at you. You know what's important to team chemistry? You want to know inside baseball here that nobody talks about is the importance of that clubhouse and the clubhouse guy who's running the show, who keeps it positive. I, I can't help but think of Bernie Stowe, who was the longtime clubhouse guy, yep. right, Tom? And he was just so, he rooted for me when I played. He wanted me to do well. He kept everybody's ego in check. If you needed anything, you went to Bernie. I mean, think about the egos that he had to keep in check during cool. the great uh, Big Red Machine, right? Yep. That's not an easy job. I'm just saying, I used to love to go in that clubhouse. I was the first one to get there, the last one to leave. I didn't really have a social life and many friends, so I had to stay in that clubhouse, and it was it was it was fun. I remember sitting there having a beer with Joe Nuxall. I don't even know if they do that anymore, but I can guarantee you this: I bet you those guys are to that clubhouse pretty early. And, and I don't know if it's Rick or Mark Stowe that's running the the home. Uh, it's clubhouse. it's uh, it, it's Ricky, Ricky. It is Rick. So I I just saying that's that's a component of that that. You have a nice clubhouse to go to, and that's that whole scrappiness, college team, rah-rah. I know it sounds corny, but that's what the Reds are doing. And then you look at Dela Cruz. Dela Cruz, you look at style master, right? He's got a style master. He's diving all over the place. I mean, he's hustling his ass off. And you just like to see this. So this is a really fun team to watch. All right, well, you know, let's stay on Dela Cruz here a minute because – uh, all the hype, number one prospect in all of baseball. Uh, you've been talking about him. Everybody believes, um, as my uh, Walgreens special cheaters are falling off here, falling apart right before your very <laughs> eyes. Um, but, um, look, all the hype, the whole nine yards, rightfully so. I mean, uber, just reeks of talent, this dude, right? And every – I mean, hits the, 
the one hopper last night, two hopper to Moustakis. And by the time he fields the ball and bounces it over there, De La Cruz is three steps by the bag infield hit. Um, but he's having a hard time getting hits here lately, right? Had a hard time in Kansas City. Had a hard time in Houston. You know, now they're back home. Um, what is the challenge for him right now? You, you talk about because you played the game. I don't know if I've ever brought that up on this show. You played the game. That's why we have you on here to offer insight. What would be right. sort of his – keep this simple for us. What would be something for him to just to keep it simple to start to focus on so this doesn't turn into a four-for-50 drought? Yeah. Well, listen, people, we don't, we don't want, we don't expect Dela Cruz to get 37 hits out of his first hundred at bats, right? I mean, who does that? Well, the right? only who, guy who I think that's ever done that ever in the history of the Reds, I think was you. Yeah. McClain came close, right, with 35, but two hits, he was still off. But to have to, in fact, I'm having someone dig in it. I think it's actually the first 200 at bats. I, I really do. So I'm going to dig into that. But being serious, Dela Cruz, keep being aggressive and keep, put the ball in play. Watch the strikeouts because he hits two hoppers. He can get that hit. It just takes a couple of those knocks. You get the confidence and you start on a roll. But he's really, really a good player. You know, I, 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 uh, I can't remember who the player was that I heard it, but I used to hear uh, Mark Grace. Outstanding hitter, yeah. right? I mean, really yes. good hitter for a long time. Outstanding really good. player. Yeah. In fact, he had the most hits and the most doubles of any player in Major League Baseball during the decade of the 1990s. A lot of people don't know that. Most hits, most doubles of anybody in the game. He could hit. But he used to say all the time, and I found this so interesting, and I'm curious what you think about this. And, and now, as this maybe pertains to Adela Cruz, Grace used to say all the time, when he would fall into a slump, he would just make a decision when he walked to the plate. I'm only looking for one pitch. If the guy, say it's a fastball, and if the guy throws me three straight curveballs, and they all break right down the middle of the plate, and I go down looking strike three, God bless him, good for him. But man, if he throws me a fastball, whether it's a first pitch, whether it's a fourth pitch, whether it's the eighth pitch, he said, I'm coming out of my shoes to whack it and whack it hard somewhere, and that's what I, that's my simple game plan. You like that game plan for maybe De La Cruz? I, 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 I like that. I like the first pitch fastball. Jump on that, and the key to that is don't miss it. Right, right. Because right. what's tough about baseball and these pitches that are so darn good is once you fall behind, you're done, right? I mean, yep. you got to get them early. I mean, it starts to get 0-1, and then they start, you know, hitting the slider on the corner. But I would look for a fastball first pitch and don't miss it. But it's important for him, because of his speed, to put the ball in play. Put it in play. Don't strike out. How long, Tracy, can they continue to win, though, when their starter's ERA is around five? They've won nine in a row. They've gotten some good outings from time to time. Clearly, Abbott, uh, three times during all of that. But how long can they continue to do this? In this division, probably the rest of the year. I mean, it's that bad, right? I mean, I don't see where any team's going to compete with them. They've got to be, do better than an ERA of over five. I didn't know that, Tom. That's a great point. I didn't know that. But like I said, they just have something going on. You feel it. 
there's something special. Joey Votto said it in his press conference. He said something special is going on with this organization. People are getting all fired up. Yep. And I don't. I should have done this research before, but I was busy because someone broke into one of my rental properties in the hood, so I had to deal with that. Um, how many people? How many people at the game last night? Twenty thousand. Oh, see that that that's not very good. You know that is that is not very good. That's very disappointing. Don't you agree? Well, look, I get tired of the excuses. I mean, I get tired of hearing them. And people yell at me and they get on my ass on Twitter. They get on whatever it is. They think I'm being negative. And all. I mean, you know, it's like the thing with the rain last night. I mean, give me a break. All right? You can get your money back. Well, I guess if, he, right. if they play the game, you won't. And you maybe sit around in a delay. So, okay. But, I mean, when's the last time the Reds won eight in a row? When's the last I can't time remember. the Reds had a chance to take the field in June? To go into first place. Well, and you can say, well, it's Monday it? night. People got to work. I get that. They play Monday night games right. in St. Louis. And they're right. 15 games under 500. They got 40,000 people sitting in the stands. I mean, I mean, come on. Well, what is the problem? What is the problem? You think people in this town and in the Midwest are very frugal? No. I don't I, understand. Well, no, 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 no. I, I think there's plenty of, you know, look, there – and everybody's different. Some people can afford to only go to one game a year. Some people can't afford to go to any game a year. And I, I said it earlier before you came on. I'm never going to tell anybody how to spend their money. If they want to sit home and watch it on TV, I'd rather sit home and watch it on TV than get in a car and go down there and pay for parking and pay for a ticket and pay for whatever you got to pay for. I mean, tonight they have this, Paul, what is this thing called? 3-2-1. What is this? 3-2-1. You know what 3-2-1 night is, Tracy? I have no idea. Paul, fill them in. It's a $3 hot dog, $3 oh, beer, $2 hot dogs, $1 ice cream. How can you beat that? What's wrong with that? That's that's very affordable. Uh, I've really never had a hot dog in years, so I don't know really how that is. But, yeah, that's very fair. That, how are you going to beat a $3 beer, a $2 hot dog, and a $1 ice cream? That's insane. You can't walk into UDF and spend that. It's right? almost a giveaway. Well, here, here, you know what people, here, I, let, let me just say this. You know what would be great, probably get the attendance up? If we do another tired bobblehead, why don't we have a Marty Brenneman bobblehead? It's been, what, three months since Marty had Well, you a know, a lot of people last night, Tracy, there were people, and I knew it was going to happen. I don't know if you saw what happened or heard what happened on the WLW radio broadcast last night. Did you hear this no. story? No. Okay. They're in a commercial break. Right? Yeah. And Joey Votto's due to lead off the next inning, his second at bat of the game. <clears throat> well, you know what happened? No. A Laura's Lean commercial was on, right? And it bled into, it was still on the radio when Votto's home run landed in the seats in right field. So you knew Did coming you get... out of the woodwork there would be those that said, well, there's Marty Brenneman once again stepping on Joey Votto, right? And that yeah. whole tired well, I, act. You know, he, talking about a tired act, he call, just called me. He's, he's in Europe, right? Right, right. So he called. Does he, does he know that we do a show every Tuesday and Thursday at 1130? Does he care? And, and as far as Amanda's husband, 
was what does he say? I'm going to ask him about that. Laura's lean, how it kind of cut in and, well, and stole the thunder here it is, away right from here. Joey. We have the clip. All right, here it is, right here, okay. Tracy. We're going. We, we've got it okay. synced up from what happened last night. Check this out. Okay. Never ever adding hormones or antibiotics. Just lean, delicious beef for stuffed peppers, meatballs, and more. Let me try that. No, just no. Get mealtime inspiration at LarsLean.com. America's team plays on America's station, 700 WLW. The very first pitch to Joey Votto in his second at bat, and he launches it. Way out of here to right, third home run of the game, and welcome back, Joey Votto. Okay, so that was that uh, after he hits a home run, and you see you could hear the radio commercial plus a WLW promo going on. Um, boy, I've been in that spot before. Maybe not in that necessarily that kind of a moment, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure the Cowboy and Tommy Thrall were not very happy. So whose fault is that? Well, you could get into a million different reasons whose fault it is. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't care whose fault it is. Uh, it doesn't make any difference to me. Um, okay, anything else on your mind before we let you go here today? No, I, I caught a situation. I said it briefly, and I'm a little frazzled. Uh, someone broke into my place last night. It's unoccupied my uh, apartments right. in Covington. Right. And uh, destroyed a fence, broke a window. Uh, I, I can't stand thieves. It really rattles me. I feel violated. I feel, I feel it just bothers me so much. Hunter's there fixing it up. And I've almost put it up for sale, put a lot of money into it. Place looks great. And here's some crackhead, you know, breaking in. Yep. And uh, not, nothing to steal. What are you going to steal, dumbass? You're going to steal some, some paint cans? Some brushes? I mean, there's nothing in there. But yet, he, you know, probably did $5,000 worth of damage. I know this isn't baseball No, but I got to tell you, just... I, saw, I saw an extended piece yesterday about this, this big thing now going on all over America where squatters are coming into people's vacated yes. houses. And I'm, I'm worried about they're it. They're just living in there. You know, say, God forbid, you have a relative that dies. Now you got to get the place fixed up, right? It's taken a couple of months, three, four, five months to get it fixed up. And all of a sudden people come in, they start living there. You call the police. And you can't get them it, out. And now you can't yep. get them out. I mean, I know. is it's that tough. where we are in America? Where common I, thieves can just move in to someone else's private property and be given any kind of rights in there? Is that where we are? I have no idea. I, 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 that's what I, it's funny you bring that up because that's what I'm worried about. I told Hunter, I says, you know, I'm worried about someone breaking the window, sit there, you know, throw their clothes all over the place. Hey, this is my place now. I don't know my recourse. I mean, what do I do, Tom? Do I go get my 34, 32 ounce S2 bat and go to town? You know, I still have pretty good bat speed. No, that you'd be, be no, bat. believe me, you'd be thrown in a slammer forever or something like that. Right? If you were to pull that off. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, yeah. I can't stand thieves. And I'm sure those two guys that would have kept the 15,000, the two ham and eggers there, they, they, they would do something like that. Would you? <laughs> you just make yourself at home at one of my rental properties? You two? No, no, I would never do such a thing. <laughs> I would always ask for permission. <laughs> And the answer would be no. 
You know, you know, you know what happened, uh, Tracy. Uh, by the way, belated Happy Father's Day. Uh, did you get to hang out Thank with you, Hunter? You I mean, did you guys have a good day? I hang out with Hunter every day. So okay. Hunter spent time with his two daughters. So yeah, Hunter, I see Hunter every day. I'll see Hunter for three hours today. We're, we're building a deck. Now, I know you don't think this guy, my character on the radio and, and, TV, and your podcast, would ever do a deck or get his hands dirty. My hands are actually, it, they will get dirty. I've actually got blisters. So I'm building a deck today. You so know, it's, funny, it's funny you bring that up because, you know, uh, our son started working a similar job yesterday. He now refers to himself as Blue Collar Brenny. So <laughs> he, was, he, drops me on, he drops that on me yesterday in a text because yeah. he knows I've been on his ass about what his summer job was going to be since lacrosse ended and what summer and everything. He was a caddy for a long time. Now he can't do yeah. that anymore because of these silly rules they have, whatever. Anyway, so he was under a deck yesterday. Well, you're bent over the whole mm -hmm. time, right? This back deck. Yeah. Digging these holes, yeah. right? Four or five mm -hmm. feet deep. Then he's got to go with yeah. his buddy he's working with for the kid's dad. And he's got to go buy 80-pound bags of concrete yeah. mix, right? Yeah. Now they yeah. got to mix yeah. it all up, pour the concrete. He walks in the door yesterday, has to be there at 7.30 yesterday morning, first day on the job. He walks in the door at 2.30 in the afternoon. He was asleep at 2.37. Awesome. Awesome. Blue collar I mean, ready. You I got. <laughs> no, but you know what? I know you're, you're proud of him because he's a great goalie in lacrosse, but I hear something like that. I get real proud of your boy. No I don't doubt know about your it. boy. Game. But I'm sure you sit there, and I'm proud that you said, "Hey, you need to get a job, right?" Because well, I mean, that's a deal. There's not going. even any debate about that around our house. You better have a job, I mean, and you better be getting up and finding something to do. And it's a tough job, right? You got to well, use your yeah. hands. I mean, I wasn't demanding that he went out and got a tough job. I mean, I did just yes. get a job, right? Get up, let's get moving, right? We're not laying around sleeping till ten, eleven, twelve o'clock, right? No, no. Yeah. My, my dad used to say, as soon as I came home from baseball, he says, I'll give you five days and then you're getting a job. <laughs> That's right. That's my, my dad, my dad was so tough. So tough. He never complimented me in baseball ever. I went four for five against the Yankees. And my dad turned to me and says, what happened to that lasted bet? You're not afraid of success, are you? That's pretty would, tough. That's Tom. what made him a great dad. I would He's argue that's what made him a great dad. Yeah. All right. Tracer, have a great rest of your day, my friend. We'll see you on Thursday. All right, boys. Take it easy. There he is, the Tracer, Tracy Jones. I wanted to bring up with him about uh, your bride. How is your bride doing, Casey, after the knee injury, and what is the full report? Um, well, we are going to get a official MRI Thursday. Okay. Um, initial reports um, from just some testing that she had to do. Right. 95% chance that it's some sort of tear in the ACL. There's not, there's no confirmation that it's completely torn, but there is something um, very wrong going on with my wife's knee, unfortunately. But, uh, that just means that she's going to be comeback player of the year next year. So that's right. Well, our thoughts and prayers are with her. We said that yesterday because uh, that's, I mean, if that's what it is, 
and you won't know um, for a day or two. But um, it's you know it's it's tough to go through, man. I mean, it's a lot of work. Not just to get back to being an athlete. It's just a lot of work. So you go to the rehab, and you're healthy one day to do all the stuff you want to do. Because if you don't go to the rehab, it doesn't get better. And the older you get, and I know she's still very young, but the older you get, um, you know, it, it's hard, man. I mean, you got to – we wish her well. We're thinking about it. Yeah. Okay. Do we have a um, cherry on top? We do. So I asked Nick Kirby to – our man. Add a little bit to a video that we played last week. Add a little more flavor to it. Okay. Uh, we are going to play this. We played it last week. The Reds have won nine games in a row. They're going for 10 tonight. They are first place in the National League Central. So just take a minute and let this one soak in. Okay. Three weeks ago today, the Cardinals defeated Bronson Arroyo we see on this Wednesday already? afternoon. Yeah to pull off a three-game sweep. Everybody and his brother across America said the Cardinals will take off and the Reds are all but dead. Well, nobody down in that clubhouse believed it because ever since then, the Reds are 13-4 and and they have gained eight games in the National League Central. They've gone from one down and with a win here tonight, they would have a nine-game swing and be eight ahead with 30 games to go in this season. Are you believing? Are you believing? So what was the twist? Just added the little Moneyball music underneath of it. Moneyball. You know I'm in the opening, uh, the opening scene of Moneyball. Do you know that? Seen it a million times. It's a great movie, Tom. I couldn't believe it when I would see that movie. I had read the book, met the author, uh, got to know Billy Bean quite well through the years. And uh, when they put that movie out starring Brad Pitt, uh, they used a, a lot of my calls from those year after year after year where the Oakland A's were getting beat in the first round of the playoffs because they wouldn't bun a runner over. God forbid you bun anybody with Moneyball. Have they just moved a runner over from second to third one time? One time. In the last three games, in two different division series against the Yankees, they'd have been in the World Series. But you don't want to butt. David Bell's bunting, right? Running the bases. Running the bases. They're winning. Nine in a row. All right, tomorrow, uh, big day today. Look, I, you know, I, I don't know what to think sometimes about, uh, about our show. We have to try and plan out. Uh, days, sometimes week, you know, maybe normally on a week by week thing about people we're going to have on. So when we line up a Keith Hernandez to come on the show to talk about the Cardinals or the Mets or his career or whatever it is, we don't know that the Reds are going to be in a nine game winning streak, right? So you get some people on the chat that are like, what in the hell are we talking about with Keith Hernandez when the Reds have won nine in a row? Well, we've already set that up. We're not pulling the plug on Keith Hernandez, right? Yeah. So like tomorrow, the Reds win tonight, it's their 10th in a row. But tomorrow, we have already agreed and planned out. Um, you know, look, we can't get head basketball coaches in this town on this show. <laughs> right? <laughs> but we can get the manager of the Colorado Rockies on tomorrow before a day game. <laughs> Go figure that one.
We can't get Sean Miller, but we can get Bud Black. Oh, no. <laughs> All right? Go figure that for a minute. Okay? So we got Bud Black tomorrow at, um, at 10 o'clock, and they're playing a 12-30 game tomorrow. So that's already set up. We got him tomorrow. And then behind him, as I mentioned, and I got to tell you, CJ in the chat, I'm a little surprised. You know, I'm a little surprised. Uh, you, you brought up today that, you know, am I trying to fill some kind of quota or something by the guests who are coming on tomorrow with my track record and what has happened in the LGBTQ community? This is a very serious conversation we're having tomorrow. And it's a guy who... When I went through everything I was going through almost three years ago, and even still to this day, was kind enough to reach out to me when I reached out to him. And we've become very close friends. And I've tried to learn a lot from this guy. And he has a very, his name is Sid Ziegler. He's going to join us tomorrow. He's a guy who started and owned Outsports.com. We're going to talk about the intersection of being gay and being an athlete. And what it means in high school, what it means in college, Olympians, pros. As more and more professional athletes, big name athletes, have come out. And some of the issues going on. Major League Baseball now. Recently saying they're not going to ask players to wear uniforms that are symbolic of the LGBTQ pride colors, let's say. And this is Pride Month. So... Uh, that's going to be tomorrow. Uh, we'll see what happens tonight with the Red Legs. Casey, great job. Paul, great job. Thank you, Tom. Great seeing you guys. Elliot, Jake, all right. We thank all of you for joining us, and we will look forward to seeing you tomorrow on Off the Bench, presented by United Dairy Farm.